0: Right, everyone, welcome to Brandon at Random Reviews. I am your host, Brandon Griffiths. Thank you for stopping by. I do appreciate it. If you're listening to me on audio, please like or follow my podcast in order to get the most up to date episodes. And if you're watching on video, and I'm hoping that you're by the time I release this, able to see it on a lot more services, just Like, subscribe, whatever you want to do in that scenario as well. Today, I want to talk about Men in Black from 1997. This is the original movie directed by Barry Sonnenfeld, and he directed The Addams Family and The Addams Family Values from the 90s. I was never a big fan of those movies. It's pretty well documented that I don't like visually dark movies that have quirky senses of humor. So he also did Get Shorty, which is one I need to go back and revisit because honestly, I seem to remember that movie being really fucking good. He also did Men in Black 2, and I remember that one being kind of a stinker. It was not particularly good. It had Johnny Knoxville as like basically a henchman to the villain, Laura Flynn Boyle. And she's pretty enough and all that, and she definitely gave off villainous vibes, But it's not like she was, like, a standout choice, you know? It wasn't, like, a big get for them to land Laura Flynn Boyle. He also did Men in Black 3, which I never saw because the second one was so mediocre. And I haven't really heard many people talk about those other Men in Black movies. For the writers, we have Lowell Cunningham, who wrote the comic book that this movie and the series of movies is based on, called The Men in Black. Then we have Ed Solomon, who wrote Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and I saw that way too late in my life. I think if I would have seen it before my teen years, I might have thought it was a pretty fucking cool movie, but it just seemed so dumb, and it is dumb, but it's like it seemed worse because, you know, it's like every fucking Pauly Shore movie I've ever seen. It was really funny when I was a little kid, but I kind of grew out of it. Sorry, Pauly Shore, I... Still love you. And then he wrote the Super Mario Brothers movie from the 90s with Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo. Everybody I talk to has nothing good to say about it, and that's really saying something. And then last but not least, for his select filmography, I chose Charlie's Angels from 2000, and that one's got Lucy Liu, My Girl Drew, and Cameron D., And that one, I I don't, like, I I liked it as, like, a 13 or 14-year-old. I loved the fact that there were attractive women in it. And going back, I think it would be fucking terrible. I think it would be very stupid, like, above and beyond what it was going for. Because I can just think of, like, scenes that are running through my head right now that are like, holy shit, that was a fucking awful scene. Why did they record that and put that into the movie? And then we have producer Walter F. Parks, who produced Minority Report, which is the definitive Tom Cruise movie that I would really like a whole hell of a lot more if Tom Cruise wasn't in it. But he's such a box office draw, you can't really deny their reasoning in choosing him for a movie like that. He also produced The Ring movies, and I've only seen the first one. The first one, when it came out, it was like. I was genuinely scared by it. It was before I had conditioned myself to not give a shit about horror movies and not let them get to me like that. And then last but not least, he produced Catch Me If You Can, which was previously covered on this podcast. And I really love Catch Me If You Can. Check out my episode on it. It was pretty early on in season one for me, but I I fucking love it. I thought it was fantastic. And Laurie McDonald is the other producer, and she didn't really have a whole lot of credits as a producer, and the only thing I could really find of note was that she's producing that Barbie movie with Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling that's supposed to come out in 2023. She's also producing Gladiator 2, which I don't even really know what that's gonna be. I I, don't. I know that people love Gladiator, and I need to revisit that one, but I don't think we need a sequel to Gladiator at all. Steven Spielberg is the executive producer on this movie, and, man, I mean, like, it just, his name carries so much weight in movies, it's like, if you see his name, you just know that you're gonna fucking have a much better chance of it being a good movie. For the score, we had composer Danny Elfman. I've talked to him at length in multiple episodes, so I won't bore you with that here. And for the soundtrack, we had Will Smith's title song, Men in Black, and I just remember that video being really silly, and I just, it's Will Smith. Like, his, his types of songs, like, I don't know what it is about him. Like, they're just, they're, to me, like, his best songs are still nothing too great with the exception of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air theme song. For the cast, we have Tommy Lee Jones, who plays Agent K, and he was in The Fugitive, previously covered on this podcast, and I fucking love The Fugitive. All-time favorite movie for me. Absolutely check that episode out. He was also in Batman Forever, previously covered on this podcast, and that one sucks ass, and I hated his portrayal of Two-Face and... There's so much more to say, but just check out that episode because, fun fact, that episode is the least listened to episode I have ever recorded. It is at the bottom of my fucking list, and I don't know why. Like, I got a little trigger happy with DC movies, but, like, man, it was it was devastating how poorly it performed. And last for him, he was in No Country for Old Men with Josh Brolin and Javier Bardem. And that's another previously covered on this podcast. I really love No Country for Old Men. It has its flaws, but generally speaking, I really do love it. And then we have Will Smith, who plays Agent J. And I honestly never had anything against him before the slapping of Chris Rock at the Oscars, but it did cast a shadow over him. I was just underwhelmed by him before, but now it's kind of like, is this guy kind of like a piece of shit too? I don't know. He was on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air that I previously mentioned, and that one is one that if you're a person who was born in the 1980s, you should know all of the words to that theme song, no exceptions. So he was also in Suicide Squad, previously covered on this podcast that was part of that DC series, and I don't have a lot of good things to say about Suicide Squad. The writing was bad, and I think I'll leave it at that. He was also in the live-action remake of Aladdin. Why don't you just go back and watch the fucking cartoon and ignore the existence of these fucking movies? So then we have Linda Fiorentino, who plays Dr. Laurel Weaver, and she was in After Hours, which is a Martin Scorsese movie that I didn't really care for. I've heard people talk about it like it was something special. I just couldn't really get into it. And she was also in Dogma, kind of sort of previously covered on this podcast, in our trading ratings episodes on Kevin Smith movies. And so me and my brother-in-law, Dan, just talked about six different Kevin Smith movies and Dogma happened to be one of them. Vincent D'Onofrio plays Edgar slash The Bug and he was in Full Metal Jacket. And I honestly, I'm not even a big fan of Full Metal Jacket as a whole for a movie, but like, and I'm also not a huge fan of Stanley Kubrick in general, but like his portion, like the first, I I guess, half of the movie is his character's experience with being bullied at uh, boot camp or whatever you want to call it. And he gets really just, it's very gripping stuff. It's a very watchable first half of a movie. And then it, Even though there's like memorable shit that happens in the rest, the rest of the movie I could just live without. I don't really need it. And he also played Wilson Fisk slash Kingpin in four different Marvel shows. Most prominently, he was in Daredevil. He was like the main villain for a lot of that show. I didn't watch Daredevil all the way through. I liked it okay. It just kind of felt like the same episode was happening over and over and over again. It was like, oh no, this is happening. Matt Murdock has to turn into the daredevil and he goes and fights these guys and he gets the shit beat out of him and he has to be nursed back to health. It's just, I I don't know. I'm not saying I dislike it necessarily. I'm just saying that like, that was kind of why I stopped watching it. And last but not least for our cast list, we have Rip Torn and he plays Chief Zed, which is how most non-American English speaking countries pronounce the letter Z. So it made sense that his name would be Zed given that there's J and K and a few others that are all letters. So his name is Elmore Torn. And I think it's like an awesome stage name. Just go by Rip Torn. It just sounds ridiculous, but I love it. He was also in Dodgeball, A True Underdog Story, with Vince Vaughn and Ben Stiller. He was also in Freddy Got Fingered, and I won't even get into the can of worms that is the career of Tom Green. So for casting notes, Tommy Lee Jones only accepted his role as Agent K after Steven Spielberg promised him the original script would improve. Clint Eastwood was offered the role, but turned it down. Will Smith was cast because director Barry Sonnenfeld's wife was a fan of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. The studio preferred Chris O'Donnell based on his performance as Robin in Batman Forever. And David Schwimmer actually reportedly turned this role down. Now, let me talk about, like, game-changing. If this person was cast, like, what a fucking nightmare. It, It would not even have been a good movie. Like I don't even necessarily dislike David Schwimmer that much but he would have been such a bad pick for this fucking movie. Like, he just, he doesn't have the comedy chops to do it. And I know he was on Friends and blah, blah, blah. Still, he's not, he's not going to be able to be a standalone funny guy. Both John Landis and Quentin Tarantino turned down the opportunity to direct this movie. And for the plot synopsis, in a world where aliens from outer space live among the population in disguise, two top-secret agents must keep extraterrestrial existence under wraps while also keeping the peace. For the tagline, Protecting the Earth from the Scum of the Universe. This was all over the posters. This was a huge tagline. It's pretty fucking good. So our story begins with a guy driving a van filled with what we find out are a bunch of immigrants. And the cops stop the van and they immediately find the immigrants in there, but another car pulls up, and out of it pop two men in black. Copyright 1997. Agent K and Agent D tell the police that they'll be taking over for them, and K begins asking the different immigrants how they're doing in Spanish until he arrives at a man wearing a large fur coat who doesn't really seem to understand K's Spanish, and Kay gets really suspicious of him, and he knows something's up with him. So the agents take the suspicious man out of sight over a hill, and they determine he's a real live alien named Mikey, who attacks a curious trooper that ends up coming over the hill to see what's going on. So Agent D, who is roughly 900 years old, fumbles with pulling out his weapon, and Kay has to shoot Mikey himself before he attacks the trooper. This movie does well at making aliens seem more grounded in how they behave despite this little attack here. They just, they seem less like pure monsters throughout this movie, with the exception of this very first one. So probably not the best foot to get off on to be saying that, but what can you really do, honestly? So the other troopers come over the hill when they hear the commotion, and Kay has to use a neuralizer device that flashes like a camera, and it, like, Wipes the memories of everyone not wearing sunglasses inside of it. A cleanup crew arrives to purge all evidence of the alien from the area, and Agent D comes to terms with needing to retire, and Kay neuralizes him, wiping his memory. He has the ability to to set how much of a memory wipe it is you know, days, months, weeks, years, blah, blah, blah. Next thing we know, a man we will for the time being know as Edwards is chasing a suspect on foot through New York City, and this guy that he's chasing has unbelievable physical prowess. Edwards nearly apprehends him, but the man warns of someone who is coming and then blinks and does something with his eyes that reveals he's definitely not human, and he just jumps off the roof and... It's very baffling. So cut to some farmhouse where a man named Edgar is verbally abusing his wife. Edgar goes out to investigate what turns out to be the sound of a spacecraft crashing into his truck. Edgar is just straight up killed by the creature that was in the spaceship. The creature actually takes Edgar's skin and wears it like a suit. So he kind of sort of looks like Edgar but not really at all like you would you would know something was up if you knew Edgar and you were talking to him it, it just it looks they did a really good job on the makeup honestly so the alien comes back in the house wearing Edgar's skin and demands a ton of sugar and a glass of water he's like give me sugar in water that's the best impression i can do it kind of scares the shit out of the wife because she knows something is just not right with her husband and she Faints, as people often do in movies, but almost never in real life. Edwards is being questioned about the run-in with the alien man by skeptical detectives that he works with. A Dr. Laurel Weaver comes in and tells Edwards she believes him, only to have her memory wiped by Agent K as he's coming into the interrogation room. Kay wants to talk to Edwards about what happened and wants to see if maybe Edwards could identify the weapon that the man he was chasing used. They go to what is totally just a jewelry store and not an alien weapons dealer type place at all. It's not a front. Don't I know what you're thinking. Edwards hassles the guy about hearing he was selling guns and he denies it until Kay comes in and literally shoots the guy's head off in front of Edwards. His head immediately grows back and it looks super weird and Edwards just knows something is going on. So Edwards identifies the weapon and they go outside and Kay immediately hits him with the neuralizer device and then he gives him a card and it says for him to come to MIB, the headquarters where Kay works. Edwards comes to MIB the next day and the best of the best military guys are there as well and they're given an aptitude test. And they're all struggling to write. And basically, Edwards is the only one that like grabs the table, the big fucking coffee table from the middle of the room that nobody can reach and pulls it over to himself and does his test on there while everybody else struggles to write. They go do target practice and it's like this big scene with all of these alien looking things and all of these military guys are just blindly shooting all of them edwards actually just shoots this one that looks like a little girl and she's carrying these books and the books she's carrying are enough to make edwards suspicious of her and he basically justifies his ex his reasoning for doing it and and they're like okay, like, everybody looks at him like he's a fucking psychopath. All the other men disperse, and Kay holds Edwards back to show him around and tries to get him to join. Edwards has to sever all ties with people to do this, so he sits on a bench for several hours so that we know he's thinking, I would have liked for them to have gone with a different route for this, like, showing that he was, like, thinking about it and blah, blah, blah. It's just, like, to have him just sit on... The fucking bench in the park or by the water you might as well have just had him agree to do it right off the bat i mean that's kind of how i feel about it he goes back to mib the next day because this is actually a movie and he didn't just decide not to do it even though he probably had plenty of reasons not to do it case shows him around the lab and tells him the mib is largely funded by patents taken out on alien technology And he shows him something that he says will replace the CD someday. And it's like a tiny little like silver dollar sized CD. And it's like, I love when fucking movies try and predict the future in those ways. Any technology they usually come up with, not always, but almost always is wrong. They're like so fucking far off base. Edwards has his identity erased and becomes simply Jay. And that's what I'll be calling him going forward. It's a little bit easier than Edwards. Kay and Jay leave in this older black Ford sedan, and we get more exchanges between the two of them where Jay is cocky and telling Kay to work on his people skills. And they try and show that this car really has some hidden features, like it really packs a wall up. And they do that by showing Kay backing out of a parking spot like a parallel parking spot and it's and he, he takes off and it's made to look fast but i'm quite positive it is just sped up footage of doing that normally like it's not it doesn't make any fucking sense also jay refuses to put on a seat belt at any point in this movie and there's this red button in the car that Kay tells him never to touch And that's totally not going to come back later, as you might imagine. Edgar is pursuing an older guy with a cat. And I'm going to call him Edgar. He is the bug alien dressed up as Edgar. But like, it's so much easier to just call him Edgar. So the old guy that he's following is this, he's alien royalty. He's like a prince or something. And he has a cat. This prince is going... And meeting with somebody, and they're both aliens, and they're both talking about this something that's coming that you keep hearing about throughout this movie until you finally get told what it is. Edgar basically poses as a waiter. He kills both of them, and... He's he's really looking for something but you don't really know what his motives are at all. Like what's his game plan? K and J stop an alien named Reggie whose wife is giving birth in the back seat and we get some solid physical comedy while J is helping the birth and K is interrogating Reggie. It's revealed that there's a mass exodus of many of the 1500 plus aliens on Earth that the MIB knows about that has started because of what's been going on and this like coming invasion or coming attack, or whatever the fuck it is. Then they stop at the farmhouse to see Edgar's wife, Beatrice, and she's been telling tabloids about what happened with Edgar, and that's kind of, like, a little joke that they make, is that, like, the tabloids that are always telling these crazy stories aren't aren't necessarily always untrue. I fucking love this woman that plays Beatrice. She calls him Edgar. Edgar. Like, not Edgar. Edgar, Edgar, it just, I, it cracks me up. I don't know why, I just love it. She mentions that he asked her for sugar water and Kay recognizes that as a bug MO, which is a specific type of alien. He tests the soil near the crash site and it further confirms his suspicions about it being a bug. Dr. Weaver, we see her, she works at a morgue and we met her earlier. She, She was at the interrogation room with Edwards. And during an autopsy, she realizes that this guy, who is actually, we know, an alien, has no organs in his body. So K and J show up and they're hoping to find something out about what Edgar's up to. And Weaver shows K something strange with the body's ear. And when touched, it opens the entire head, revealing a small alien who warns them about finding a galaxy on Orion's belt. Like he's trying to say something. And belt isn't really the word he was looking for, but he couldn't think of what it's called. It doesn't make any sense to anybody, but it's like, it's pretty fucking crazy. I mean, it's it's basically the, the whole focal point of the plot is this galaxy on Orion's belt. So Kay is looking up some mystery woman at MIB, presumably from his past, and he sees her in the most crystal clear satellite video that even allows non-overhead views, and I I know your explanation is going to be that it's like they used alien technology. I'm not fucking buying it. I'm sorry. I just, I can't suspend disbelief for that much. So Edgar breaks into the prince's jewelry store looking for the galaxy and seems interested in one of the pictures with the prince and his cat. I feel compelled to mention that they did an amazing job with Vincent D'Onofrio's makeup. He totally looks fucking creepy. It's like it's hanging off of his fucking face and stuff. And he's got this goofy walk and all that. It really accomplishes what I think they set out to accomplish. So Jay was given this weapon called a Noisy Cricket, and it's actually smaller than, like, one of those tiny, I think they're called Derringer pistols, but despite his annoyance with such a tiny weapon, like, he wants some giant, like, shotgun-sized alien gun, he doesn't get it. It actually ends up packing a wall up and, like, when he fires it, it, like, shoots him back, way fucking back from... Where he was standing. The prince's species are called Archillians, and they're demanding the galaxy or they'll destroy Earth. So they're giving these demands, I believe, directly to MIB because they know MIB knows about them. What is not clear is how no one else on Earth has recognized that there is a giant alien spaceship right by Earth. I digress. It's revealed that the galaxy is actually in a small piece of jewelry hanging from the cat's collar and the cat's name is Orion. And so he was trying to say Orion's collar, but he was actually saying Orion's belt. And it's funny because like, everybody's like, Orion's belt is just three stars in a constellation. There's not a galaxy in or or on Orion's belt or in Orion's belt in any way. That's not how this works. So Edgar comes to the morgue to get the cat. K and Jay show up hoping to get it first. And Weaver is there talking to Jay while she's being silently intimidated under the table by Edgar. Eventually, Edgar sees the cat and he takes it as well as Weaver. He just flees, runs off, whatever. I mean, he stole this exterminator van or whatever. Back at MIB, it's revealed that the Archillians have given them one hour to deliver the galaxy. And they're trying to figure out how Edgar plans to get off the planet while the MIB has his ship. And Jay points out the ships on the World Fair Towers in Queens could be Edgar's escape plan. I mean, they're they're basically two flying saucers. So while Jay and Kay rush by car to get to Queens, Kay presses the scary red button. And the car is revealed to have turbo thrusters that allow it to drive on the ceiling of a tunnel just to get through traffic. It's a pretty cool thing of course jay isn't wearing a seatbelt, so he's falling all over the car edgar is scaling the tower at the world's fair site while carrying weaver and she's trying to convince him not to eat her and she gets free and falls safely into a tree lucky for her because he sounded like he was pretty dead set on eating her jay and Kay arrive at the world's fair site with big guns and edgar is activating one of the ships And he flies over a baseball game. And we get this kind of cheesy moment where everyone's dumbfounded by the ship. And it's just kind of wild, honestly. It's just, it's so silly. But it's, there's a really cool shot of this fucking ship going over the baseball stadium. I really like that. So the two agents shoot at the ship and it comes crashing down. And Edgar is pissed and reveals the giant bug he truly looks like. Under his skin suit. The bug eats their weapons, and Kay gets the bug to eat him so he can retrieve his gun, while Jay does all he can to stop the bug from getting on the second ship. It seems like Jay can't stop him, but he realizes it violently upsets the bug when he starts crushing roaches coming out of a dumpster. So when the bug comes back and confronts Jay, Kay blasts his way out from inside, and Weaver has to kill the bug with the other gun because k didn't actually kill the bug with just the one blast so as things wind down jay tries to convince k not to wipe weaver's memory but k pulls out his neuralizer and tells jay he's not his partner he's his replacement so jay wipes k's memory and k goes to get back with the lady from the satellite footage. We see it on like tabloids that they reunited or whatever. And then the movie closes out by showing Jay and his new partner Agent L, formerly Dr. Weaver, taking on a new case. All right, so then we roll credits and praise for this movie. I honestly fucking love the writing so much in this one. It's so well concocted. I didn't feel like there were any scenes that needed to be cut, but I think the final product that they came out with was solid. It was well worth it. The visual effects and designs are actually pretty great, and most of them hold up pretty well. Some of them are kind of shit, but what can you do? It was 1997. The amount of Chekhov's guns in this movie are astounding, and we're experiencing little in the way of unneeded scenes, and Tommy Lee Jones honestly is fucking great as the straight man. It's fucking great. I really think he was a great call for this one. He's way better than what Clint Eastwood would have been if he would have gotten it. For criticism, I would just say that Will Smith's humor can be annoying. Like, I remember liking it as a kid. I saw this movie when it came out on home video as soon as it came out. I thought it was funny as hell, and I thought Will Smith was fucking great. But he's kind of worn thin. Like, this, this whole sense of humor he's got is not great. And then Linda Fiorentino was just not a likable choice, in my opinion. I really wish... They could have found somebody with a little more of a personality. I guess she just didn't really bring much to the screen. For trivia, in order to achieve his character's distinctive walk, Vincent D'Onofrio put on knee braces so he couldn't bend his legs and taped up his ankles. He also watched a lot of bug documentaries, which is hilarious to me because why? What? He's not really doing any bug-like things or understanding anything about bugs, like, that he needs to use in this part, it, it's, that's just fucking silly. I've, I've heard actors, they like to do that a lot of times, where it's just like, oh yeah, you know, it's like he, he was, he was gonna play a chef, so he learned how to farm for eight years in preparation, and it's like, "Uh, he probably didn't need to know all of that. The sunglasses used by the men in black are the Ray-Ban Predator 2 glasses. After the film's release, Ray-Ban reported that sales of these glasses tripled from 1.6 million to 5 million. The American Humane Society made sure no animals were hurt during filming, including cockroaches. Will Smith was actually crushing mustard packets in that late scene in the movie. At the end of the day, they had to count all of the roaches and make sure that none were missing. The crew blew up a 25-gallon drum of blue goo for the scene in the beginning of the movie, and that, it was a pretty funny thing that they did. I mean, just, it was a little, little funny. I liked it. The crew built a 96-foot replica of the Queen's Midtown Tunnel, exactly one-eighth the size of the real one. It was completely authentic, down to the graffiti, and took four months to build, and it's such a short scene like Did you really need to do that? Like, I don't know. I feel like he could have done something else. When James, played by Will Smith, jumps from the overpass onto the tour bus, he jumps from Pershing Square Bridge, the same location where Robert Neville, also played by Smith, is attacked by the Demon Dogs after the sun goes down in I Am Legend from 2007. Linda Fiorentino did not return for Men in Black 2, despite the movie clearly setting her character up. Producer Lori McDonald claimed that Agent L was not considered a permanent character, and it was also rumored that she was difficult to work with, and I even saw something about Tommy Lee Jones refused to work with her or something. I don't know. I heard the same kind of stories about her on Dogma, like her and Kevin Smith really clashed, and it was very toxic. You have to think, if you hear more than one story about an actor or actress being difficult, That it's probably not a good sign, and it's there's a much better chance it's true. So on to info and ratings. We had a runtime of 98 minutes. This movie is rated PG13 by the Motion Picture Association of America, budget 90 million, opening weekend 51.1 million, worldwide gross 589.4 million, IMDB rating 7.3, Rotten Tomato Critics Score 91%. Rotten Tomato audience score, 80%. Personal rating, 4.5 out of 5 stars. This is one of those ones that, honestly, if I if I could like really do a good job of being objective and not let nostalgia take over, I probably wouldn't rate this so high. But I still, I love a lot about this movie. There are some things that don't stand the test of time. But, I mean, I loved this when I was... 10, 11 years old and it's, it's still great. It's still a solid movie. All right, everyone. Well, I hope you enjoyed the episode today and obviously, you know, like subscribe, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, all that fun stuff. So, all right, have a good rest of your day. Bye now. Brandon at Random Reviews artwork, theme music, and podcast are written, performed, recorded, engineered, directed, and produced by Brandon Griffiths in association with Brandon at Random Reviews Entertainment.